0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
1: McCormick. And this episode is from The Vault. It originally aired on
0: July 7th, 2020. Uh, this is an episode about travel. That's right. This one, I believe this was a Mazda-sponsored episode. And it's just about how does travel engage the senses, which uh, which I thought made for a pretty fun discussion.
1: Oh, and it's thematically appropriate because uh,
0: because Seth is on the road this week. So I hope his senses are being fully engaged. Well, I don't know about fully. I hope because he's traveling with pets. So I hope it's there's like a comfortable level of sense engagement. That's what I'm wishing for him. Pleasure and pain indivisible.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert
1: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about travel. Uh, This is an interesting subject to think about right now because of the context of the ongoing pandemic, you know. At least here in the United States in early July, of course, the, the the risk from coronavirus is still clear. It's very profound. And so this has put some obvious limitations on people's designs for summer travel, uh, like whether it's actually worth the risk at all to travel right now. And if you do travel, how to mitigate those risks. Of course, if you are traveling this summer, you should consult your local health guidelines. Uh, it'll probably include advice like avoiding crowds, all the stuff you're familiar with by now, keeping your distance from people outside your household, Wearing a mask if you're in public. Uh, You might need to quarantine before or afterwards, depending on where you are, and so forth. But in addition to these practical considerations, it's the time of year that a lot of people would traditionally be thinking about summer vacation season. You know, They'd be thinking about how this is when they would be trying to get out of the house and go somewhere and see something new. And that underlying urge might still be there, even as we grapple with all the risks and important precautions that you would need to take if you were actually going to travel right now. And this has gotten me thinking about what travel means to us and why it is that our brains keep trying to compel us to visit far off places known and unknown.
0: Yeah. And to your point, though, it is a weird time to think about travel. Uh, I was in a like a zoom call with some friends uh last week and uh one of one of them said uh well you know I, I don't know if i can do next week because i need to travel actually no i'm not traveling i'm just going i'm getting in the car and going from one place to another and we we're all well, <laughs> well that's travel that sounds a lot like travel uh-huh. uh but but we mean different things by travel and uh and, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that a bit here in this episode Because, yeah, human travel is really fascinating when you think about it. Uh, The act of simply traversing distances uh, or, say, traversing vast distances is far from a distinctly human thing. Uh, Consider some of the more outstanding cases like uh, the eastern gray whale, for example, which regularly journeys close to 14,000 miles from Russian waters to Mexico and then back again.
1: Yeah. uh, Great white sharks are another example that swim just these unimaginable distances. I was just reading some reports from 2014 about a great white shark named Lydia that was tagged with a tracking device off the coast of Florida in March 2013. And then about a year later, she had traveled uh, something like 20,000 miles across the Atlantic, you know, crossing over the mid-Atlantic Ridge and was heading toward uh, basically around the U.K.,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Another example that frequently comes up, monarch butterflies. They take a 5,500 mile journey from central Mexico and California uh, up into North America. It kind of goes in different phases, but eventually they're, you know, they're getting up as far north as the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. And then in the the avian world, we have a number of of amazing examples, but the most extreme is that of the Arctic Tern, which flies a record 44,000 miles. So these are just a few examples of some amazing journeys undertaken by individuals or groups. But then there's also the steady tide of migration that enables organisms to spread out across the planet. And humans are, of course, a prime example of this, with our earliest waves of archaic human migration beginning, uh, what, an estimated two million years ago. And in waves, we proceeded over the course of our history to spread across the planet, finding a foothold in all but the most inhospitable of environments.
1: Yeah, and there's something interesting to think about when comparing human travel to other long-traveling organisms, which is that humans travel mostly on land. Like, Obviously, we travel by air and sea too, but when you think about most of human history, a lot of the traveling is on land. And if you look at just a list of like the farthest traveling organisms, you will see a lot of magnificent beasts that travel either by water or by air – and th- these are very different methods of travel, right? Th- these are both methods that allow you to do unique things, like drift along in currents of the fluid, uh, whether that's air or water that move naturally through the larger media. You can't really do the same thing on land, right? Unless you're like riding a mudslide down a mountain, which is not safe and not recommended. Uh, and and so th- that makes that makes land travel kind of different than the other ones. Uh, and of course, there are other animals that do this. There, are, there are some epic walkers on Earth, like the blue wildebeest in Africa or the caribou in North America. The latter of which sometimes migrate something like forty eight hundred kilometers annually.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. I, I guess you could say that that flying and uh, and traveling by boat for the passenger anyway, it is kind of like you're, you're taking walking and uh, via uh, the use of vehicles, applying it to the air or the sea. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. But uh, but uh, yeah, for the most part, we are we are walkers. We have to have these uh, these fabulous uh, vehicles that allow us to do anything more. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I do enjoy those thought experiments of like running. How fast are you going if you're running forward
0: in a plane cabin that's already flying <laughs> too fast? Because you you should set down. Yeah. Um, now, uh, so human societies of course they have spread out across the world, but of course they continue to move around for the same reasons that animal species do: for resources, for mating, for. Sharing shelter, hunter-gatherer uh, societies especially had to follow the natural ebb and flow of available resources, where food could be found growing, where the prey animals traveled, and therefore you know, you'd know, you have to follow them and hunt them. And there were also uh, associated sites that offered shelter, water, or say in some cases something like hot springs, something that was uh, you know, a, a desirable resource to have on hand. And it wasn't until the agricultural revolution that humans really were able to put themselves more in a position to set down roots. But still, many groups remain nomadic by necessity, shepherds, uh, you know, for sure. But also, you know, think of fisher people who still have to get in their fantastic vehicles of old and travel to where the fish can be found. Mm -hmm. And with surplus stocks of agriculture, uh, with the rise of cities, we also see the traveling conqueror, the, the occupation of cities and advances in sailing technology that enabled people to expand even further. But what about traveling for reasons not directly associated with food, shelter, and reproduction? This leads us to a particularly human aspect of travel uh, that that ultimately brings us to our modern idea of travel and especially things like vacation travel. But it has its roots in religious travel, sacred travel, and pilgrimage. Mm, Interesting. I was reading um, a paper by Lutz Kahn. Kelber. Um, this was uh, titled the Paradigms of Travel from Medieval Pilgrimage to the Postmodern Virtual Tour, published in 2006, Tourism, Religion, and Spiritual Journeys. Uh, and the author points out that religiously motivated or sacred travel to sacred sites might well be the oldest and most prevalent type of travel in human history, and may have factored into the beginnings of the world's oldest religions. Religious travel is uh, the oldest form of what is uh, sometimes referred to as non-economic travel, and we see evidence of this going back even to Neolithic times. Hmm. I was reading about this in uh, Intercultural Pilgrimage Identity and the Axial Age in the Ancient Near East by Joy McCorriston, published in Excavating Pilgrimage from 2017. And the author points out that we see examples of temporary gathering, uh, sacrifice and feast that are, quote, commemorated in a memorial or monument with subsequent revisits. And these date back to Neolithic times. Likewise, in Africa, we see evidence from 8000 years ago of cattle sacrifice in, quote, mortuary linked feasting that they commemorated with stone monuments.
1: Yeah, religious pilgrimage is an interesting thing to consider. And there are multiple models for thinking about the cultural role of pilgrimage and how it first emerges in history or, I guess, in prehistory, uh, given the examples you just cited. One interesting idea that I came across was in the works of the influential anthropologists Victor and Edith Turner in their uh, 1978 book, Image and Pilgrimage in Christian Culture. That was uh, from Columbia University Press. And in this book, they observe a lot of things about Christian pilgrimage sites. So they do like observation of the behaviors of of pilgrims uh, at sites from Mexico to Ireland to France, and they end up characterizing these religious pilgrimages as what they call a liminoid phenomenon. Now, this was interesting to me, but it also gets kind of complex and took me a while to understand, and I think I've got it figured out. So here are the basics. Uh, So, first of all, the idea of a liminoid phenomenon plays on the original idea of a liminal experience, which is a term that was coined by a folklorist named Arnold Van Genep. Uh, And the word liminal here comes from the word for threshold. So, a liminal experience is part of an initiation or a rite of passage in which uh, a person temporarily steps outside of normal social structures to undergo or signal a change and then rejoins the social structure on the other side of the experience having changed. So there's who you are before the change, that's preliminal, and then there's who you are after the change, that's post-liminal, and then in between there's this suspended middle state, the liminal state. And this might be in a practical example, say the time that a person physically separates themselves from the rest of their tribe to do rituals for some part of a rite of passage. And in the context that they studied, the Turners argue that this middle liminal status is reinforced by the fact that people join in what they call a communitas. It's this sense of community with other pilgrims that comes with a freeing sense of equality and a shedding of previously existing social structures and differences, Uh, though I have noted that several critics disagree with the Turners characterization here, citing examples of, well, you Know, there are times when regular power structures are still expressed among and between pilgrims to religious sites. Uh, It may be that if this equalizing community power of communitas uh, during pilgrimage really exists, it might be more common in some types of pilgrimage than others. And just one example, uh, there was a paper I found by a scholar named Darlene Yushka, which does an amazing job of making this critical point just in its title, which is, whose turn is it to cook? (laughs) But to bring it back to the idea of, so they're arguing that pilgrimage might be one of these liminal experiences, this like in in the middle state of this change process, Uh, except they they call it not quite liminal. They say it's liminoid. And so liminoid applies to experiences that are somewhat like liminal experiences in structure, but they're more optional and they're less explicitly transformative of your station in society. So they might be seen as simply an internally transformative experience rather than as a marker of an externally change in status. And in a lot of religious traditions, pilgrimage is honored but not required, you know, so that would make it more liminoid than liminal. And I was reading a review of the Turner's work by the anthropologist Daniel R. Gross. And so he has kind of a mixed opinion. He thinks the book is valuable, uh, but that he also has some criticisms of the idea of communitas being a universal. But he pulls an interesting quote from the Turner's book uh, describing the role of the the Christian pilgrimage, which says, quote, in the paradigmatic Christian pilgrimage, the initiatory quality of the process is given priority, though it is initiatory. To and not through a threshold. So, if I understand correctly, in their view, based on all of the observations they've made of, of Christian pilgrimages, the symbolic message of a Christian pilgrimage most often might be not, you are now changed, but welcome
0: to the process of change. That's interesting, and I think that's something we can we can continue to to take with us in this discussion and apply to uh, uh, to to travel itself. The idea of travel as a a process of change, which we probably don't think about it as such, but I think whenever we engage in meaningful travel, uh, it is a process of change. We should arrive in a different place and. And in at least a slightly transformed state of mind, like even if it's as simple as, well, I have to drive up to, uh, you know, um, to my parents' house, but I'm going to listen to this audio book on the way or I'm going to catch up on my podcast like I'm somehow going to arrive there in an enhanced state.
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, And I think it makes a lot of sense to think about that enhanced state that travel triggers as essentially an openness to change or a potential for change.
0: So I think it's pretty safe to say that as far as non-economic travel goes, sacred journeys are ultimately the, the predecessor to modern vacation travel. Uh, now, a, a particular line is often drawn to the link between medieval pilgrimage and also some of the economics of medieval pilgrimage uh, with modern travel. You know, you see um, advances in, in banking and so forth that take place during that time. Uh, and of course, it's also important to note that the pilgrimage is still, you know a, a, very much a part of modern travel traditions not only in the overt case of, you know, people going on an actual pilgrimage to holy sites, say, you know, to, to Mecca on the Hajj, that sort of thing, but also Holy sites are often of significance to the modern traveler, even if they themselves are not, uh, you know, believers of that particular faith or practitioners of that particular faith. Like if you, you know, if you go to a, uh, a particular vacation destination and there is an ancient temple, there's a good chance you're going to want to check it out to whatever degree is appropriate.
1: This actually triggers something for me that I want to come back to when we talk about uh, Roman tourism.
0: Yes, Roman tourism, because because uh, this is also key. We, again, we can we can look to examples of sacred travel, uh, you know, th- far back in history. But in terms of looking for examples of travel that more closely resemble modern vacation travel, there are some interesting examples from the Greek and Roman periods. Uh, for instance, in our episode uh, that we uh, this is from what a couple of years ago I think we did uh, an episode on the singing colossi of Memnon. Uh, we mentioned how the then fourteen hundred year old pair of Egyptian statues were visited by Roman travelers in the first century CE. They'd uh, you know they they'd come to experience them to to hear this unique singing that they um, that they, that they produced, uh, and then they inscribed their names uh, on the statue as well to show right. that they had been there.
1: So rude. I mean, I guess they just must have had a different attitude toward the preservation of of historical artifacts and and monuments. But man, yeah, graffiti on this like hundreds of years old monument
0: yeah it's worth noting that they they did seem to equate these uh, statues with the greek figure memnon but the colossi were not really of any religious value to the roman travelers as far as we can tell Uh, and of course they were of egyptian origin uh, anyway
1: on one hand i think that is true but also That had me thinking about another tangent about the significance of sites that we visit and how our orientation toward culture and religion kind of uh, mitigates whatever that that relationship is. Uh, Something that I think is possibly interesting about understanding the pagan Roman mindset is that, well, at least compared to us, at least here in the United States, for a lot of us – Our idea of religious significance is primarily through either kind of a secular lens of just sort of disinterested observation or perhaps through an exclusive monotheistic lens uh, so that when we visit sites or monuments that were of religious significance to other cultures in history – I think it's possible that we're more likely to just think, well, that was somebody else's belief. I don't believe that, but this is interesting. But the pagan Romans were, I think, somewhat more religiously omnivorous. Their world was full of gods, and I think to many of them – it would have been perfectly plausible to go somewhere and find out about yet another god that you weren't aware of before. Uh, so I think it, it might have been possible for a pagan Roman to wonder, you know, to to see a statue uh, made by the ancient Egyptians that had some religious significance to them and wonder if something is going on here that's worth investigating or knowing more about. At least more than than many of us would would feel that way. And if there's any truth to this, it would make traveling to a foreign land with a great history, a different kind of experience, I think, like it would be, you know, you might also discover things that are actively relevant in the world. I I know that the Romans generally had a respect for antiquity when it came to religious traditions, uh, though I'd be interested to hear from listeners with expertise in ancient Roman culture and religion to find out what they think about this.
0: No, this is a great point. Yeah, the, per, perhaps the Romans traveled more um, with kind of a, a spiritual mindset, you know, as opposed to a, a, a religious one. Um, I, you know, as as a a traveler who. Who does like to go to to religious uh, sites? I mean, I, I always think it is kind of an ex- a, 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 a rewarding exercise to sort of engage in that kind of spiritual mindset. You know, to to try to at least to the degree that is culturally appropriate. You know, to to experience it uh, almost as if you were a believer. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. um, Though it's gonna, you know, obviously it's gonna vary depending on what is what is culturally appropriate what feels appropriate given uh, given the, the space but uh but yeah you, you go to some of these these places and you're engaging with such such history and like the and the level of belief is is tangible because you know, a lot of times you go to a religious site and there are practitioners of the religion there maintaining the grounds or the facilities in addition to visiting it and it it creates this this sacred air that you can't help but breathe in
1: yeah, I totally agree. Now, another issue, just whether or not it's appropriate and all that, it's also just a question of what, to what extent it's possible for you to like get into that alternate mindset. I, I know it's oh, yeah. easier for some people than others. But yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful
0: exercise. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will discuss um, the work of a Greek author that's, uh, that is sometimes pointed to uh, as the world's first travel guide. All right, we're back. So, yeah, of particular note here is uh, Greek geographer uh, Pausanias, who lived uh, 110 through 180 CE, and some indeed point to, uh, to him as being the world's first travel writer. He wrote a book in the 2nd century titled uh, Helidos uh, Peregesius, or The Description of Greece, and it is essentially a travel guide. Um, I, I, I was reading about this uh, in an Atlas Obscura article titled "The World's First Travel Writer Was a Guy from Ancient Greece" by Lauren Young, <laughs> and uh, she uh, she chats with uh, Maria Pretzler, professor of ancient history at Swansea University in Wales, and the author um, uh, of a book about uh, uh, Pausanias, Pausanias' travel writing in ancient Greece. And uh, the author uh, says that you know there were smaller guides at the time, but uh, Pausanias' book is the largest and the most comprehensive survives to this day. And also it still works. It still functions as a travel guide. You know, obviously the world has changed, but a lot of the, the places and even the landmarks are still there. Interesting. Now, the, the full text can be found online, and I, I invite everyone to, to go check it out because it's, it's very recognizable in travel literature. This is not an example where you're looking at ancient writings and you're having to really you know, squint a bit and you know, take a few leaps of, of faith to identify it as, as travel writing. No, you read it, and it reads more or less like modern travel guides. Uh, in fact, I highly recommend when you read it, uh, and make sure that the voice that you hear in your head is tuned to uh, your favorite TV travel guide, maybe Rick Steves or someone, because (laughs) it's exactly the sort of thing Rick Steves would say, you know, it'd be like, uh, like Pisanius is saying, oh, well, you're going to, you're going to round this next corner and then you're going to see the, uh, the city of such and such. And out here you're going to see the sea. And well, there's a there's a a particular uh, legend about this, uh, uh, about a military engagement that happened here. You know, this sort of thing. He's just telling you how you travel from one place to the other, what you're going to see there, what the historical significance or cultural significance of the place is. I want to
1: know the ancient Greco-Roman world's equivalent of the person who like gives the one-star Google reviews to awe inspiring monuments from the ancient world. You know, like
0: two stars for the Leshan <laughs> Buddha. Well, I mean, maybe uh, I, I don't even think the Romans were doing that on the the Colossi, were they? Uh, like one star, Colossi did not sing while I was here. That sort of thing. Yeah, it was too hot. Ba- bathrooms hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as far as I can tell, Pisanius wasn't engaging in, uh, in any of that. Uh, but he is indeed often pointed uh, to as, as this example of like early travel uh, literature and this idea of modern travel uh, in the ancient world. Uh, but there are also some, uh, some other examples that pop up. Uh, there's a quote attributed to the semi-legendary Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, the old master and the founder of Taoism, who's often depicted as traveling on a water buffalo um, in, in, uh, in art in sculpture and the quote is a good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent upon arriving Hmm. so uh, he's said to be a sixth century bce figure though he might have been a fourth century bce historical figure again he 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 takes on this air of semi-legendary status like you see with a lot of figures from that period in chinese history Um, Though uh, uh, what's interesting about this is this 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 mantra of um, of traveling with no fixed plans and not being intent upon arriving, it does certainly get to sort of this this heart of travel uh, as the the transformative journey. Um, and, and gets into this you know, sort of uh, unmoored sounding notion of travel, further removed from the idea of destination travel and perhaps more in common with some of the ideas of hunter gathering, uh, though even in those traditions, a certain amount of strategic thinking was involved. This, uh, the, the, this, this does feel like a almost a I feel like a more modern sense of, you know, just go out and see the world, just be that uh, noble drifter from uh, from that film you saw in the 50s, that sort of thing. This Lao Tzu quote
1: makes me think of a poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay, The Unexplorer. Do you know this poem? I don't think I do. It's great. It's a short little poem. I can read the whole thing. So this was published in 1922, and she writes, There was a road ran past our house, too lovely to explore. I asked my mother once. She said that if you followed where it led, it brought you to the milkman's door. That's why I have not traveled more. (laughs) I think it's a great encapsulation of the sort of the letdown feeling of when, you ha- when you're when you a child and the world is full of unknown possibility, you have that exploration mindset. And then the adult lays on you the instrumental nature of travel. Well, that road goes to the place I go to get this.
0: Yeah, the, the interesting thing, too, is that the, the Lao Tzu quote, I think, is going to get to the heart of what we're going to spend the rest of the podcast talking about. And that's how our senses engage with travel, because ultimately if if your senses are fully engaged, if all this sense data is streaming uh, you know, into your nervous system and into your, your your brain, this is how we often enter this state of, of you know being in the moment of living in the now of just observing and being a part of the the stream of things mm-hmm. and i think that ultimately like that's one of the really rewarding aspects of travel uh, and it, we might not even focus on it that much i mean to a certain extent especially today like it it helps to have a destination in mind it helps to have a plan and you sort of plan everything out and have a destination so that you can perhaps feel even accidentally that unmoored um, nowness of travel
1: yeah, absolutely. Well, then do, do
0: you want to shift over now? Talk about talk about travel in the senses? Yeah, let's do it. So so we've gone through some examples of what human travel is and how long we've been carrying it out. And uh, and we should also stress that travel is maybe not for everyone. You certainly encounter people who don't care for it or have intense personal or sort of scholarly objections to engaging in travel. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, for instance, wrote, "Traveling is a fool's paradise. Our first journeys uh, discover to us the indifference of places." Hmm. <laughs> Um, and, and I guess you also see it reflected in such adages as you know wherever you go there you are that sort of thing, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think sometimes that's that's more about tramping on unreasonable expectations of travel, but. Right. Uh, But you you also see this this notion uh, uh, elsewhere as well of um, of travel as being a way of of avoiding inner local and spiritual endeavors. Um, uh, Gandhi um, said something to this effect as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can certainly see for some people how travel might just be a way to busy the mind, you know, just like anything, just like the same way TV could be a way to busy the mind. Um, and in that sense, that uh, I don't know that that might be a less rewarding way to think about it than as opening yourself to experiences of novelty and readying yourself for change.
0: Yeah, but but then again, even if your intent is one thing, if you're going to end up get, it's kind of like sneaking the um, you know the medicine into the jam or something, or or <laughs> you know grinding up some um, uh, pulverizing some vegetables and sneaking them in, um, mm-hmm. you know, to the president's spaghetti, that sort of thing. Um, it's it's like you're, if you're going to end up engaging in novelty and engaging the senses, then uh, then, then ultimately the goal is there. Uh, how, how I, I, do, I do want to point out there, there are environmental and sometimes health objections to travel. And we yeah. touched on some of those at the beginning. And we, we should, you know, certainly these are not things to dismiss. Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean,
1: you can simultaneously acknowledge that there might be a lot of great uh Great reasons to appreciate the role of travel in human life while also understanding, hey, you know, uh, maybe, maybe we're driving more than we should be. Maybe we're flying in planes more than we should be. And certainly understanding during like a time of pandemic that there are a lot of inherent risks to travel. And if you're going to do it, you need to get really serious about finding ways to make it safe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there is also the point that the travel can be. Um, this travel itself, as an industry, can be an a, uh, you know an economically transformative force, but it can also be. Uh, it can also pose uh, certain dangers to. Um uh, to historical sites, to uh, to local culture, to the local environment. If if it's not carried out uh, in just the right way,
1: yeah, that's another thing. I'm sure most people listening have probably experienced at some point where you you go to a place wanting to experience what that place is actually like, and instead, when you get there, you find that it has been altered to make itself amenable to tourists and visitors like you. <laughs> you know,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Um, this this has sadly been the Case with, uh, for instance, uh, some uh, uh, cave environments, mm. where a part of the cave ecology is how it is is closed off, and then if you open it up, uh, you often just—I mean, you 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 take part of its uh, its life away from it. But uh, in, in uh, if you, I want to come back to the, the tourism industry because there there's actually a lot of informative material that comes out of that industry, out of uh, uh, papers and conferences uh, related to just figuring out like how do people engage. Uh, uh, in a tourist experience. And this is where I came across a really what I thought to be just a wonderful visual breakdown of how we engage with uh, environmental stimuli uh, during, well, in this case, during travel, but perhaps to a, a certain degree just, you know, in life itself. And this was from Designing Tourism Places, Understanding the Tourism Experience Through Our Senses by Kim et al. presented at the 2015 TTRA International Conference. And uh, apparently this uh, particular graphic framework of tourism Experience Creation was adapted uh, from some earlier work uh, by, uh, by Krishna uh, from 2012. And I'm, I'm going to describe it here. But basically, the idea is you start with environmental stimuli, and then that feeds into sensation, vision, hearing, smell, taste, touch, uh, proprioception, temperature, sense, and pain. And then that's going to all those uh, sensations, and, and hopefully you're not feeling too much pain on your your vacation or on your travel but um I mean, but all those a part things, of it pa- pain yeah. makes an experience real it's true yeah i mean generally in my, in my experience the first day of travel is going to have its share of pains, and you, you just got to be prepared for it mm-hmm. but anyway all those sensations then are going to go through your individual filter And then from there, they're going to go to perception. And then the the perception of those senses is going to go through the individual filter again. And it's going to go in a couple of different directions. It's going to go to emotional response, your emotional response to your perception of those different senses. It's also going to go to a cognitive response. To those perceptions of those different senses. And then likewise, you're going to have an emotional reaction to your cognitive responses. And you're also going to have uh, um, a cognitive response to your emotional responses. Um, So, you know, kind of going in a circle there. And then all of that is going to go through the individual filter again and feed into attitude, memory and behavior.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the elements that's most relevant to us is how travel affects memory. I, I want to come back to that in a moment after we discuss novelty a bit.
0: Yeah, novelty I think is going to be going to be key here. So, as we've discussed in the show before, humans didn't evolve for to live in like a solitary confinement situation. We evolved to thrive in an environment of change, seeking resources, calculating risk, etc. And some of these qualities have led to our I think our species spirit of exploration. Uh, But one of the more studied aspects of all of this is certainly novelty, because travel to a very large degree comes down to novelty. You put yourself in a place, an environment, perhaps a culture that differs uh, from what you deal with every day. Uh, And and this is where you can feel, you know, this uh, enthralling, exhilarating, overpowering, and and at times even frightening sensation uh, of novelty. It is it is I, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say this is an altered mental state. Sure. Yeah and one doesn't achieve this uh, this particular altered state through the consumption of a potion or a mushroom or or the via the physical alteration of brain tissue no you achieve it by traveling from one environment to another uh and then continuing to be human along the way and upon arrival And during this altered state, you might often find yourself functioning as a sponge, right? Soaking up information about your travel destination or things along the way, perhaps pouring yourself into the local museum or historical site. And if this is is this is you, it might be due to the role that novelty plays in associative learning. Uh, I imagine a lot of us have experienced or have been the uh, this or in you know, other people or have been the person who comes back from a unique trip and is just rattling off, you know, endless facts about the experience for everyone, about this uh, site they saw, this museum they, they, uh, uh, they visited, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it becomes uh, th- there's a risk when you travel somewhere that the place you most recently traveled becomes your point of comparison for everything. Yeah. every Every topic of conversation relates back to the most recent vacation you took uh, and i I shamefully will admit i 've been of that frame of mind before, and I think that happens because of uh, because essentially the prominence of a travel experience in the memory enables the availability heuristic you know the the availability heuristic is uh the the idea where um concepts and memories and ideas that are more accessible in memory are overrepresented in our view of the world. So if we're looking for comparisons to whatever we're talking about, whatever is just most prominent in your memory is going to be the thing that's most likely to
0: facilitate those comparisons. Now, speaking on on memory here, there, there, of course, are multiple different forms of memory at work in the brain, and different brain states can enhance certain forms of memory. Associated learning, which we're going to be talking about here, is the ability Ability to learn and remember the relationship between unrelated items, and we've we've known about this this, this particular uh, relationship between novelty and associated learning since the 1960s. Uh, the idea that novelty can enhance associated learning. Uh, one key finding, it seems, stems from uh, from 2012, though. The University of Toronto's Dr. Catherine Duncan used fMRI to identify how the brain triggers memory states. And she identified a brain region, region that detects novelty and demonstrated that novelty detection acts like a switch, impacting how the brain learns and remembers. Now, she's quick to remind everyone this is not the only switch. Uh, memory is complex, and there's a lot we uh, still need to study and understand. But this is one example where it seems like we can we can draw uh, a line between one type of, um, of brain state and, uh, and a change in the way we, we learn and the, the way we form new memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the process uh, here involves the dopamine system, which is involved in associative learning. While this had been previously suspected, uh, it looks like there was some, uh, some additional um, evidence for this that came out in February of this year, 2020, uh, from uh, the Flanders Institute of Biotechnology, published in the journal Neuron, They took a look, closer look at how this might work. So working with mice, they found that dopamine neurons were activated by new smells, uh, but not by familiar ones. Uh, so this enhanced learning, and they were able to stimulate or block dopamine activation in familiar settings than to alter learning in the mice, slowing learning down or speeding it up. Now, part of the take-home here is that we might be able to learn better by shaking up our routine. Um, uh, I, I feel like I engage in this or at least i would engage in this in a pre-pandemic world where if i you know i'd be working on something and then i would i need to change locations i'd go to a a different coffee shop or something you know somewhere else some new environment where i could work while you know sort of casually observing foot traffic or uh or I i also really enjoy working on my front porch watching people and trains go by that sort of thing uh there's something about putting yourself in a novel environment that seems to help with uh Uh, with um, forming these associations but this particular study also sheds light on some of what's happening when we engage in travel how and why we record strong new memories and why a vacation may seem in retrospect a fuller example of life than our day-to-day
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, so there are multiple things here. I think we've touched on the podcast before, at least the anecdotal evidence that people seem to find that on a vacation or during some kind of travel or major change to their day-to-day routine, it's easier to establish new habits or to change existing habits. That's kind of an interesting thing. Like people don't usually think of like the vacation as a good time to start a diet, but it might actually
0: work. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen this pointed out before. Like if you if you want to change up your your schedule, start doing it on vacation and in a new location.
1: Yeah. And I I think this this relates to memory, obviously, and and the idea of associative learning is very much based in memory. But another thing about memory that this makes me think of is we've talked previously on the show about, uh, I believe it was the neuroscientist David Eagleman who had pointed out this research uh, about the different perception of time in the moment versus in retrospect and how that relates to novelty. And uh, the idea was that in the moment, experiences that are novel tend to go by really fast. They feel like they're happening really fast and then they're over. And you probably know this from experience. It seems like, you know, your your regular routine day might kind of drag on, especially if you're doing something kind of repetitive and boring. But your vacation, where you're doing a lot of novel, different stuff, just kind of flies by. It feels like it's over in an instant. But then once you get into the retrospective mindset and you're representing those time periods in your memory, suddenly the reverse is true, where the experience that's full of novelty feels like it lasted a long time and a lot of stuff happened in it. It's like it spreads out and expands in your memory, while the uh, while the period of sameness where you didn't experience a lot of novelty contracts down to a point, and there's almost nothing to remember about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, there's nothing like going on vacation to fully engage in the weirdness of time, right? Um, in terms of novelty, uh, I, I think Eagleman might've been the one to refer to us as, um, as novelty junkies. Uh, mm-hmm. it could be misquoting him on that, but I, I, I have that, that association is in my head for some reason. Um. I also ran across a book uh, titled Satisfaction, in which the author Gregory Burns uh, points out that even if you don't personally like no- novelty, if you're the type of person who, you know, you, you feel very strongly that you like a-, a strict routine, you don't want any novelty thrown in, you may not personally like it, but your brain does. Uh, because when we engage in novelty, we kind of go into probe mode, into explore mode. Our brains tune up to absorb and process the information we're hit with. And so I think that's really interesting. to like take that and think back to this, uh, the sort of flowchart of uh, how we engage with environmental stimuli. You know, um, how you know it's going to be that that novel stimuli, those novel sensations that are going to end up sort of supercharging this loop of emotional response and cognitive response, and then feeding into the formation of these associated memories. Mm. And I think that also helps us better understand two of the the, the oft cited benefits of travel: broadened horizons and self exploration.
1: Well, yeah, this brings us back to the uh, anthropological framework that we were talking about earlier. Now, that was specifically in the context of Christian pilgrimage and not travel more broadly, but I think it probably relates to things that are going on often, if not always, in travel more broadly, which is the the idea that it is uh, it places you at the threshold. It doesn't necessarily put you through it, uh, but it places you at the threshold of personal change and transformation. And I, I think that there's some relationship here between that cultural observation and the idea of what's going on in the brain when we experience a lot of novelty, that we're sort of primed for associative learning, that we can form new habits and the formation of new habits, while it doesn't sound all that sexy when phrased that way, it is the basis of the change of the self.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the idea of travel overload. All right, we're back. So, Joe, uh, I know you like um, Italian horror films. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, have you have you ever seen a little film uh, titled uh, Stendhal Syndrome? <laughs> No, I have not seen the whole
1: thing, but I have watched the scene that you linked me to in it, uh, which, involves, uh, which involves a character kissing a fish on the mouth. And while I've heard that the movie is not that great overall, even though I do love some Italian horror, uh, this fish kissing scene is extraordinary.
0: Yeah, this was the, the 1996 film, The Stendhal Syndrome, by Dario Argento of uh, Suspiria mm-hmm. fame and, and countless other films in which uh, weird stuff. Stuff happens and people are stabbed. Uh, right. This is very much in the genre of of weird stuff happens and people are stabbed. Except it has this this weird hook with Stendhal syndrome, in which a in this in the film you have this character played by Asia Argento, who um, experiences this overwhelming sensory experience when she engages with fabulous works of art. Um, mm-hmm. I believe that uh, she's in the movie. She's looking at landscape with the fall of Icarus, and so has this. There's this dream-like sequence in which she falls into the painting and falls into the ocean. Uh, you know the, the, that Icarus would have plunged into. That and that
1: Is that by Bruegel?
0: Yeah, I think it's Bruegel uh, uh, the Elder, yeah. and uh, and so she falls into the water, and then inexplicably uh, she kisses a fish. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 a it's a, it's a noteworthy uh, scene in. Uh, In in, in the film, uh, for sure. Uh, But it also does uh, link into this idea of Stendhal syndrome that is an an actual, uh, at least alleged, um, uh, phenomenon that occurs. It's named uh, for the French author Stendhal, who wrote such works as The Scarlet and Black. And he, he, he originally wrote about a case of what we might call extreme travel overload. Hmm. Uh, this was from uh, his book, uh, uh, Naples and Florence, A Journey from uh, Milan to Reggio. And he talks about uh, emerging on a, on a porch uh, and, and being seized with this fierce palpitation of his heart, feeling like his life had just dried up, and then uh, and feeling like it was just going to collapse, like he was just physically overcome uh, from uh, having visited a, a particular site. Hmm. And, and this, kind of, this idea, though, was really um, sort of drawn out and, and certainly was given the name Stendhal syndrome by an Italian uh, psychiatrist, uh, Graziella uh, Magherini, who, uh, who wrote about this in her 1989 book, uh, uh, The Stendhal Syndrome, which defined it as a complex process, quote, not intellectual, but sensitive and easily susceptible to emotions. So essentially a kind of sensory overload, um, and, and it can apparently result in an number of different um, symptoms, breathlessness, panic attacks, faintness, temporary psychosis, even all of this brought on via exposure to uh, great works of art. Generally, the sort of great works of art you would find in a museum in a destination uh, city. Now, I, I would be
1: shocked if um, j- just because of the interesting and sort of romantic nature of this syndrome if it's, uh, I don't know, legitimacy or, or clinical characterization has not been somewhat controversial or questioned at some point?
0: Yeah, that, that is my understanding of it. I think it's it's one of these ideas that's, that's certainly snazzy and, and, um, and, and appeals to sort of the storytelling uh, sensibilities mm-hmm. uh, uh, that we have. Uh, though at the same time, I don't know. There, there seem to be enough stories of it. I feel like there is a, there, there is something going on here, um, mm. which will perhaps uh, unravel here. Uh, n- now, there are other related uh, uh, alleged uh, syndromes as well. Uh, one, for instance, is Rubin Syndrome. Uh, this is the name given for uh, erotically charged activity that breaks out after or even during viewings of works by old masters such as Peter Paul Rubens. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know about that. I've never, I don't think I've experienced or, or witnessed that going on anytime I've seen um, uh, people uh, looking at art in an art museum, but who knows? Maybe they're going around the corner.
1: Is Rubens the painter where like just everybody is just majorly thick, just like awesome, like everybody's got huge butts and they look amazing? Uh,
0: yeah, I think that would be a, a fair uh, description of, of, of Rubens' work. Um, yeah, it, certainly there is a, a kind of an erotic charge to it. Uh, now, uh, where I think we really get here into the, the travel uh, aspects of this whole scenario is that there's a version of this, a more travel-centric version, uh, that is uh, summed up in the idea of Jerusalem syndrome. Mm, yeah. yeah in which tourists have been said to experience psychosis while visiting holy sites in the city of jerusalem and there have been similar accounts related to travel to mecca holy sites in spain etc so it's not i don't want to make it sound like it's just jerusalem specific but the 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 people who came up with that term were largely looking at data regarding visitors to jerusalem who were there for uh, you know essentially out of a sense of religious pilgrimage Again, I think one of the big—we uh, kind of have to come back to that chart and, and think again about travel and senses. You know, like imagine—you well, we can. You don't even have to imagine. A lot of us can think back on examples where we ourselves traveled somewhere and got to see a work of art or a particular site, something that that was— indeed the the destination and and you you build it up in your mind right you have a lot of reasons to to want to experience it cultural or maybe perhaps it has to do with with uh, your political sensibilities or your your overall worldview like you really need to see this thing and connect with it and witness it Uh, on top of that Sometimes you encounter a work of art and you realize, oh, I had no idea it was that small, mm-hmm. or um, or or perhaps the lighting is weird uh, and it doesn't actually come off as well uh, in person. Uh, I feel like I had that situation with. Um Buchland's, um, uh, the Island of uh, of, of Death. Uh, mm. uh, the, the you know where you have the, the weird trees and it's this uh, you know, this, this very uh, Isle of the Dead. I'm sorry, that's the name of the painting. Um, and I think there were a few different versions of it. it a very evocative painting. Uh, but when I saw it, I think at the Met, or I saw a version of it at the Met. There was something about the way it was lit and the way that the, the dark aspects of the painting came off. Like I didn't find it as pleasurable an experience. On the other hand, there are plenty of other works that you just don't get the scale unless you are there uh, Ooh, in front
1: yeah. of it. I've had both of those experiences looking at art. I, yep. I've I've seen things that I'd seen before and like digitally represented. When I saw them in person, I found them disappointing. And I've and I've had it on the other end. On the other end, one that really stuck with me where uh was uh in the louvre the paintings of eugene delacroix the the french painter who i'd seen some of his works before just like you know images on the internet and they never really stood out to me but for some reason when i saw them in person i was like wow i couldn't stop looking at them.
0: oh yeah uh, um I feel this way about the works of uh, o- Dali, for example. I mm-hmm. feel like his his work is is, is oftentimes best experienced um, large scale though he has some, of course some works that are actually smaller than you expect. Um, likewise, one of my favorite painters is Irving Norman and, uh, he often painted these little, very large pieces and it's just something about being there with it. And likewise, when we're dealing with, uh, with other aspects of travel, like you think of things like the Grand Canyon, like I, I've talked about on the show before about like seeing the grand, being there at the Grand Canyon is just uh it's it's an experience that that cannot be um, you know properly um housed and just uh, you know uh, looking at a picture or reading about it like there's the experience of being in a place of uh, of, in, in, of 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 taking it in and and just being a part of that environment or in the case of historically significant locations temples cities etc like to actually be there for this place to suddenly be physically real you know i can I can see how that could be overpowering to the senses because it is engaging the senses and your uh, and, and your, your, your your cognitive and your emotional processes uh, to such a high level. You
1: know, for me, that connects to a feeling that I've often had throughout my life. And I've tried to explain to other people, and I think I have just failed to adequately communicated. Maybe I'm about to fail again. But it's this peculiar emotion that I associate primarily with two different activities. One of them is successfully following instructions to uh, uh, to accomplish a mechanical task, such as like repairing an object that I have no Mm -hmm. previous knowledge about how to fix. And the other is arriving successfully at a location that I've like read about before both times. I have this experience of, of sudden overwhelming kind of rectitude with the universe. Like I feel like, ah, the external world is real <laughs> if that makes any sense at all. It's it's a powerful emotion in the moment. Uh, and I don't know if this is something that other people really experience, but it's something that's hugely operative in my mind and in my life.
0: No, I think I've I've, I've experienced something like this as well. I mean, it's it's kind of like the on one level the manifestation of the the inner world you know Uh, research becomes real and on the other hand like this is what this is one of the things that we have evolved to do you know it's like the finding of things the uh you know is it like we we you know we can read about these uh, all day and it's satisfying and it's fulfilling but to actually you know hit the the ground and uh, and actually you know find a particular location or thing like that that engages us on another level and engages the, the full uh, capabilities of our senses. Now, if you're, if you're wondering, okay, Stendhal syndrome, Jerusalem syndrome, should I be worried about my senses being overloaded uh, the next time I'm, I'm able to travel? Uh, I would say, based on the information we're looking at here, uh, you know, I would not freak out about this. Basically pre-existing psychological conditions seem to be a major factor in most of the, these cases of people being overwhelmed by uh, the sights and sounds of travel. Uh, again, if we think of travel as an altered mental state, and if we factor in potential travel stresses and travel anxiety, we can easily see how travel to a given uh, location could trigger a slip into an overwhelming mental state. And the stress, you know, of course, would, would certainly be capable of triggering a pre-existing condition and causing it to flare up.
1: Yeah. I mean, going back to something we mentioned earlier, I mean, like stress is a big part of travel. It's not the part that we tend to focus on in our memories because we think about all the good things about it. But like, yeah, stress is almost always going to be there. And that's going to be a key factor for exacerbating underlying psychological issues.
0: Yeah, and I was looking at a 2018 Columbia University's uh, Mailman School of Public Health study uh, that showed that traveling a great deal for work, so like 2 weeks or more per month, was capable of inducing enhanced depression and anxiety. Now certainly that's business travel, that's not non-economic travel like we we're talking about here, but I think it still underlines like, you know, when we when we're traveling, uh, you know, we are uh, you know, we are engaging in stress. It is a it is ultimately a stressful um endeavor even if you feel like you really have a handle on it there's also you know interesting research along the lines of sleep and of course sleep has an impact on our overall mental stability Uh, i think we've talked about the first night effect on the show before in which one tends to experience worse sleep on a first night in a new location and studies have shown that this seems to be related to enhanced activity in the default mode network during these nights
1: so travel for uh, those seeking the limits of human experience pain and pleasure indivisible
0: <laughs> yeah i mean uh, it's something to keep in mind um I, I think it ultimately like it just it i know in the past when i've when i've traveled uh, you know with with my family i always try and remind myself that that first day of travel is going to it's going to be stressful it's going to have there are going to be some flare-ups and you just got to you know try and you know maintain some relative level of, of cool and uh, and flow with it well, maybe
1: it's the time that you're directly en route to your destination where it's uh, most important to keep the spirit of uh, Lao Tzu or of the, the child, Edna St. Vincent Malay before uh, having her, her, her mother dash her dreams of exploration. Have, have that mindset. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. You know, to, to sort of remind yourself that it is about the journey, not the arrival. I guess the thing is, it's hard to remind yourself of that when you're, say, stuck in an airport somewhere. Right. Like, yeah. it's about the journey. Oh, I guess I'll have a Cinnabon. It's it's not quite as rewarding, I guess. It's about the
1: journey of standing in line for coffee.
0: <laughs> yeah so travel again i think it's important to to remind ourselves that it is it is an altered state and it is uh, and and our senses play so heavily into the journey and into our experience of the arrival along with our various uh, you know emotional expectations
1: you know bringing it back to the present circumstances of the world and, and all of the stuff going on right now. One thing I think I would remind people is, of is that I think you can get, you know, if you if you're feeling this overwhelming desire to travel right now, but you're also trying to be realistic about all the risks and stuff. I think you can get a lot of the benefits of travel just with activities that actually do remain relatively close to home. You know, the, even near your house, there are probably places you can figure out to go where you can experience something novel but you don't have to travel long distances or be amongst crowds. You can stay with, you know, your household and family members and that kind of thing.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And in some households and of course I'm speaking to uh, you know, sort of a neighborhood environment uh, here, not like a, a, a really dense urban environment. But, uh, you know, there are cases where people have, are doing what they can to sort of enhance uh, the, um, uh, you know, the travel sensations of just walking around the neighborhood, be right. it decorating for Halloween or Christmas several months early, um, <laughs> doing kind of unique things with their yard or with signage, you know. Uh, so I do, I do feel like the, the, that, that spirit, you know, can be found even during a, a, what is ultimately a, A challenging time for those who uh, seek novelty. Obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone out there because we know we have some extensive uh, travelers uh, that listen to our show. We'd love to hear your take on all of this, uh, how your senses are engaged during your travels. Has it ever become overwhelming? Uh, That sort of thing. And how you're you're, you're coping today. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you help us out. Uh, Leave us a nice review. Leave us some stars. Um, Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And of course, share the show with friends. Just tell people about the show. Uh, that helps us as well.
1: Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stuff to you. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. ¶¶